Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Hunger Games, the new adaptation of the mega best-selling Suzanne Collins novel. And joining me from Washington, D.C., Slate's office in D.C., is Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hi, Dana. You are a Slate senior editor. I am now. Things have changed. Yes, we've been doing this podcast for so long that you've had probably five different jobs while we've done it, but now we work (laughs) in the same place. And uh, you're one of my longest standing and favorite podcast companions, and you are definitely my go-to person for anything involving young adults, trilogy, fantasy, giant bestsellers, franchise, all that stuff. So this is a perfect Dan Coyce spoiler. I'm really happy to have you here on it. I'm happy to be here. I'm your nerd guy. Yes, I get it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I just you always you're going to know so much background lore on this that I don't know. I have read the book, the first book, and I'm now reading the second book, essentially because these books are so addictive that I had to run and run to an airport bookstore and buy a hardcover copy of uh, of Catching Fire, the second book in the Hunger Hunger Games trilogy after seeing the movie. Yeah, they do that to you. I believe I read all three of them uh through one single weekend, getting progressively more and more angry. Oh, yeah, because they're supposed to go downhill, right? But don't tell me. Don't tell me. Oh, well, I mean, this is the spoiler special, Dana. You you signed up for this. <laughs> oh, so it's, it's, it's all pervasive. Once you're on a spoiler special, everything and anything is fair game to be spoiled. Right. Also, there is no God. Because <laughs> you've been there and back, right? <laughs> spoiler. There is no God. So let's talk about The Hungry Games. Uh, yes. Oh, I should also warn you that I, I was up until 6 <laughs> last night. So uh, I make it a little punchy at points, and you may need to come and rescue me on on the Hunger Games. But I have not talked with you yet about the Hunger Games. It's this. It seems to be the conversation that everyone is having right now. I'm trying to predict based on based on my knowledge of your taste in adaptations whether you're going to think this works or not. I have to say that I, this is not a great movie. I'm not sure that it would be a freestanding movie if you hadn't read the book. But I think it's a pretty faithful and and really well done adaptation. You? Uh, I kind of loved it. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I actually do think it stands pretty well alone. I mean, it's it's impossible to tell when you've read the book and you know it pretty well. But I do think that this is the kind of movie, as you say in your review, that is going to gain those few people who have not read the books as fans of the series. Yeah. I, mean, I think that it's exciting. It's uh, – quite well made. It's more thoughtfully directed than I think I even expected. And it has, at the heart of it, a star-making performance from Jennifer Lawrence, who is totally fantastic. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of debate among Hunger Games fans about whether she was the right actress for this role, as there always is when big, beloved characters are cast in, in their Hollywood adaptations. But I can't imagine anyone watching this movie and thinking anything other than, oh, well, obviously Jennifer Lawrence was the perfect person. Yeah. I, in, in fact, I can't even think of anyone, at least who's the right age right now, who, who could have played the role, any other current actress. Maybe there's you know some undiscovered person, but I wouldn't have had any other suggestion even. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, maybe just go through the plot a little bit for those, um, uh, again, few people who have not seen The Hunger Games or read The Hunger Games or had it impacted into their skull by constant pop culture reference. Yeah, I think um, even people that have, I mean, I had a vague sense that this was about gladiatorial reality television style, you know, children killing children games. But I think what's impressive about the book, and then the movie really recreates it pretty well, too, is how complex the world is that Suzanne Collins manages to to build up. And she also co-wrote the script. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is going into. And obviously, some of it had to be condensed and, and compressed and edited down for the movie. But I still think that it's got that 
very swiftly painted world building kind of quality, which I like. There's not a lot of exposition or some character who's saddled with, you know, having to clunkily explain how all the rules work. But so can you please clunkily explain how all the rules work? Uh, well, so the Hunger Games takes place in a country called uh, Panem. Um, which in the is undisclosed clearly, future, right? A few right, hundred years un- from now. Right. And it's clearly uh, – it's meant to be North America. Um, I think it's I think it's explicitly described in the books as North America. Um, it posts some environmental or or military or some kind of catastrophe, which then led to an armed uprising by a, a, a great deal of the population, which was then put down. And so now, as the country exists, there's the rich and fancy capital city, which is located somewhere, I guess, in the center of everything. And then surrounding it are twelve very poor districts. Um, each of which provides some crop or or material or labor that the capital city needs, and those districts were the ones who who uprose, and the capital was who put them down. And so now, seventy four years after this war, there's this terrible yearly ritual that the capital uses to keep the, the districts in line, which is the Hunger Games, where each year one uh, teenage boy and one teenage girl from each district are taken to the capital city, trained, pampered. Uh, made stars and then sent into gladiatorial combat battle royale in which only one can uh, survive. Right. So and the whole thing these... is televised in this sort of impossible sci-fi fantasy way, right, where the camera is always exactly where you need it to be. And this whole kind of hunting grounds that they're released on, which seems to be maybe like a few acres, a few square miles or so, um, right. is, is is studded with these cameras that, that pop up and, and broadcast their every move to, to a – eagerly watching nation. Right. So there's those 24 kids are released there and over the course of a week or two, uh, they all kill each other except for one who survives and is crowned the victor. And then that one person becomes famous and uh, and if they can psychically survive what they just went through, I suppose they can go on to live a full and happy life. And the idea, I mean, there's a few different things that are being not quite satirized there, but allegorized, I guess, right? So it's there's this kind of fascistic political structure, but there's also extreme capitalism, right? Because of the the vast gulf between rich and poor and, and Panem. And then, of course, it's also the culture of entertainment and the consumption of other people's lives through you know, reality TV that's that's being, again, it's not quite a satire, but that's being essentially sort of like uh, reenacted, you know, on a grand uh, exaggerated scale. Right. And what, I mean, one of the fundamental, fundamentally interesting things about this movie that I think a lot of people will be talking about and that I'd love for us to talk about a little bit is this notion of how, how is there a, a, an intellectual disconnect um, about making a violent mass entertainment for teenagers that is also meant to satirize the notion of a decadent society making a violent mass entertainment featuring teenagers. Right. I think. I mean, yeah. to me, I would say that the, the the movie or the book, at least, I think, is 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 smart enough to to skirt that question or not skirt it, but sort of acknowledge it and incorporate it. Um, I'm not sure uh, in the movies at the movies it's different, right? I mean, you're not right. you're not inside the character's head. This whole thing is narrated by the heroine Katniss in the book, and so you have I think you have a, you have more social critique in the book and a little bit more thoughtfulness than in the movie. But that said, I would not say that this movie is a, a massively exploitive um, sort of 
it, it doesn't do the Hunger Games, you know. I think it still critiques the Hunger Games. I felt that that was still there. I mean, it's definitely not Battle Royale, which is the Japanese movie that many people have compared the story to, which obviously is a tradition of gladiatorial combat that goes back a long time. I mean, it's not particularly gory. Um, it's emotionally troubling, obviously, when kids get killed. And there aren't really any scenes where anyone gets killed, any of the kids get killed, where I feel like audiences are going to be cheering wildly. Uh, at the death of this child, even if it's one of the teenagers who's presented as sort of like a bad guy as opposed to a good guy. Right. And some of the things, I mean, as long as we're spoiling, some of the, the more horrific deaths that happen in the book, I'm thinking in particular of Cato's death, the sort of main bad guy, the the, oh, yeah. the biggest and burliest of the, of the tributes of the 24 kids, who is the last one to die and who in the book is just horribly mauled for hours by these genetically engineered wolf creatures and essentially begs for mercy and is finally shot by by an arrow and dies. And that's a really, really troubling part of the book. There's a, there's a funny line in the book where Katniss is, is narrating this horrible moment that they're waiting for this kid to die and just saying, that was a bad night, and just something like, and by the standards, you know, the standards <laughs> of the nights we've been living, that's saying a lot. <laughs> Um, so, so that's softened a lot in the movie. I mean, he only yeah. has to, to beg for death, you know, once. <laughs> yeah, just once. And, and what else? An what are some other deaths eye? that are a little bit less horrible? I think that the girl who's stung to death by the genetically engineered wasps has a slightly less gruesome end than is pictured in the book as well. Uh, yeah, it's pretty gruesome. I mean, a lot of – I mean, one thing that – a choice that Gary Ross made, he's the, who directed this movie, um, that works at times and certainly aided him, I think, in his goal of making this as PG-13 as he could, um, is he – once we're in the Hunger Games – his camera sticks really close to Katniss, to Katniss's head. I mean, almost almost her POV, which is to say there's a lot of handheld camera. Um, she's pretty tight in the frame almost all the time. Very rarely do we pull out to give us a big picture of what we're seeing um, or, or what's going on in the sort of the broader scope in the games. And so moments like that are sort of filtered through the horror with which she views them. So, you know, when that girl gets stung by all those tracker jackers, it happens very quick. There's a lot of quick cutting. We sort of view it as Katniss does, almost looking away in horror as this thing happens. Plus, she's distracted because she's busy getting stung by tracker jackers, too. Um, when other deaths happen, they happen quick, and they also sort of happen we view them the way that she does. We The camera averts its eyes often in the way that she does. One of the things that I thought the movie did really well, actually, and that I wished it did a little bit more of, was that the few moments it did give us the broader view, it gave, it, gave those moments to us in the context of the control room of The Hunger Games with these sort of Truman Show-like scenes of – um, Seneca, the the game master, um, who's played by Wes Bentley, and his fantastic beard, um, his curly cute, multiple curly cued beard, his beautiful beard, um, uh, and his you know all his technicians who are working to to manufacture this entertainment event, you know, who are creating weather when they need to create weather and shooting fireballs at people when they need to jack up the intensity or whatever. And, and so that, that vision of the control room is something that's new from the book, right? I mean, it's vaguely hinted in the book that, that, that there are some people who have the capacity to control the weather and remotely right. throw fireballs and things like that. But there isn't any moment where we visit this kind of Dr. Strangelove style room where it's all happening. And I thought that was technically really well done and just a, a, a good creative addition. Yes. And just very useful to us because those were the moments as an audience that I was really 
as an audience member that I was really thirsting for, just a, even a minute to give me a sense of, well, where is everyone in relation to everyone else? What does this world look like from above? And it was a, I agree that it was a nice artistic choice to add those because it helped me just get out of the intensity and intense focus of the actual scenes within The Hunger Games just for a second to get the big picture. Dan, let me stop you for just a moment for a word from our sponsor. We're very, very happy to have back as our sponsors Audible.com, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the web. They offer more than 100,000 titles, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're listening to us on right now. And right now, Audible has a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial, get to use their service for 30 days for free, and also one free audiobook if you sign up at this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. You can choose a free book from their vast library and also get a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest and get the newspaper read to you. And we like to make a little recommendation in these audible spots. And I think the one for today's spoiler is obvious. You can listen to the entire Suzanne Collins trilogy, Hunger Games, Mockingjay, and Catching Fire. I think in the reverse order, those last two, all on audible.com, read by Carolyn McCormick, who, according to Andy Bowers, our executive producer, is a wonderful reader. So if you want to get the book into your head um, some other way, listen to it on your commute before you see the movie, go and pick it up on audible.com. So that URL, again, and be sure to use this one so the spoiler special gets the credit, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Okay, Dan, back to Hunger Games. Well, some of the things that I thought, as described in the book, were going to be really hard to render on film without looking just really sort of bakey and hokey were, were quite well done. For example, this tradition that, that every night in the sky there's a, there's a, cannon, there's a cannon fires to announce a, a child's death and then the, the face is projected in the sky. And I was just having trouble picturing how that would happen. And it's, sort of, it's, it's just done interestingly by making the whole thing sort of seem like the Matrix, right? There's sort of a, right. a, a, a computer-style grid that appears in the sky and you get some sense that like a hologram is being projected or something. I mean, the whole thing, you don't know exactly what widgets exist that produce these, you know, these futuristic technologies, but it seems like a, a coherent world, even though it's a strange mishmash world that mixes up sort of Roman Spartan style gladiatorial culture with, you know, hyper technologized realities. Right. Uh, we actually, there's an interesting piece running in Slate this morning by Matt Iglesias about the the um, the economics of Panem and whether a country like that could actually exist, a country with a fabulously wealthy capital city and, and amazing technology and like high-speed rail traveling over hundreds of miles, um, but also the, with the vast majority of the population being um, completely poverty-stricken and technologically basically like back in the Stone Age. Right. It's not even clear actually why high-speed high speed rail would exist, right? It's sort right. of like why the Ayn Rand book where, where trains still exist in the, you know, in the, in the hyper-modern future. If you can do the things that they can do in that control room and, you know, create, change the weather, then why wouldn't you be able to just beam the kids to the capital? Or more than that, like no one ever goes from the capital to the districts. Like it seems like they built these high-speed trains just to be used once a year to take all the tributes from the various districts to the capital. Right. And the other 364 days of the year, the train lines just sit there, occasionally swept off by some guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, but I, I want to read Matt Iglesias' piece, but even if it's completely economically and politically unfeasible, and it seems like it probably is, like those, all of these these things couldn't coexist and, and there couldn't possibly be that much governmental control, I still think on the, on the fantasy level, it kind of rings true, especially on the oh, yeah. teen fantasy level. I was sort of thinking yeah. that the political and social critique of this movie is roughly analogous with the Paul Simon song, The Sounds of Silence. <laughs> you know, it's not the <laughs> deepest critique in the world, but it feels really heartfelt 
heartfelt and sort of like a, a, a mind awakening, you know, like a, a, a young person thinking for the first time about injustice and, right. and you know, all of these and, and, and mass entertainment and, and politics and all these issues. Right. You can definitely see a 14-year-old going, oh, my God, That's this so could deep. happen. Right. Right. So let's talk about Jennifer Lawrence a little bit because I really do think that – I mean the movie is obviously going to make a trillion dollars. Um, it's well made. It's very entertaining and it had an enormous fan base already. But I think the real takeaway from this and I think you agree based on your review is that Jennifer Lawrence is, has the potential to be a gigantic star and is really, really great in this movie. What did you love so much about her performance? I guess I mean just the understatedness of it. You know, I mean this is this could so easily be a, a preening kind of role and 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 I'm a movie star role and I think she really does kind of become a movie star in this role but precisely because she's not acting like one. You know, it's not self-congratulatory mm-hmm. at all and it goes with the character perfectly and because the character is is very understated and sort of as has been observed widely sort of the anti Bella Swan, the heroine of Twilight, right? I mean right. someone who's sort of passive and 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 boy crazy and very focused on her emotional life. I mean it there's something a little bit autistic about Katniss, and I think Jennifer Lawrence gets that across really well without having dead eyes, you know, in the least. Right. And, she, you know, she's – yeah, unlike Bella, she's completely allergic to drama. Uh, yeah, and, and there's something – yeah, there's it's, it's almost as if she's not straight or something. It's almost as if there's some sort of a weird gay subtext in the book to me because she's so uninterested in these boys who are, you know, swooning over her. Right. We haven't even right. talked about her love interest. We should summarize them briefly. Oh, right. I guess we should. Sure. There's PETA who is the other tribute um, from District 12 who Katniss knows because once – he's the baker's son and once when her family was really hungry, he tossed her a loaf of bread. Um, and then there's Gail who is uh, Katniss's best friend, who she's known for years. And they uh, sort of traditionally a couple times a week go out hunting together in the woods outside uh, their district. Um, And he's not selected for the games. No, he's not selected for the games. We see him occasionally hunkily watching the games uh, back in District 12 with disgust or sadness or concern, etc. Do you agree with me that Gail, the character, was really disserved by the movie? I don't even remember him that much from the book, but he must have been because he must have been more interesting than this in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, he's not a major presence in the in the first book, at least, but he's he's sort of a major voice. You know, I mean, essentially, he is the kind of voice of of dissent and and kind of political questioning from the beginning, right. and right. and really one of the only people in the book, even more so than Katniss, who who talks about leaving, talks about running away, and tries to envision some some outside to this to this reality they live in. And yeah. I, I feel like in the movie, I mean, both because he's he's played by this male model type, Liam Hemsworth, the, the brother of Chris Hemsworth, right? The, bro- the brother of, of Thor, who's, <laughs> oh, who's this kind right. of blow-dried hunk. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say he's a bad actor even because he's given so little to do, but he, he looks wrong to me. I feel like there needed to be someone a little bit wild and sort of Peter Pan-like, you know, somebody who seemed mm. like they could live in the woods. Uh, well, more like Josh Hutcherson then, who does give off that air, I think, a little bit. Um, what did you think of him in this? I was not 100% on board with him as Peter, although he grew on me, I think, as the movie went on. I actually think he was terrific. I mean, everybody in this movie was was pretty good, but everybody was sort of outshone by Jennifer Lawrence. I don't feel yeah. like there was – Stanley Tucci, for example, is great as this sort of Casey Kasem-style master of ceremonies <laughs> who introduces the, the, the televised games. And everybody in those – Elizabeth Banks as this really grotesque kind of woman who helps shepherd them through the whole, the whole training experience. All those people were great, but but it's so Jennifer Lawrence's movie. I like Josh Hutcherson. He's he's really good. I think that Jennifer Lawrence – one of the great takeaways from this for me for her is that I can't imagine any other actress working today who could essentially make a career, like make a great career out of a mo- as a movie star out of 
two separate movies in which her character kills, cooks, and eats a squirrel. <laughs> This is what uh, this is what our editor John Swansburg was saying to me this morning. Was he there, he was seeing even more similarities between Winter's Bone, her her big sort of debut, well not her debut, but her breakthrough role, let's say, mm-hmm. and 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 this he was saying like how many roles is Jennifer Lawrence going to find where she has to protect helpless younger siblings in the presence of a catatonic mother and an absent father while hunting small game on the side? <laughs> There's really a lot of remarkable similarities between Winter's Bone it, and the Hunger Games. It's her niche, you know. Everyone has a specialty. No, I think that she's really great, and I mean I say that jokingly because I this role has made me think that she can maybe do anything. I mean, she's just very tough. She really plays the emotional beats really well, way better than I think a movie like this usually usually can have. I mean, you compare this movie to something like the Harry Potter series, which, as you know, I really like. But the emotional beats of the Harry Potter movies, especially when played by the heroes or the heroes specifically by Harry, they never had this kind of emotional potency that the emotional beats in this movie do. And that's because of Jennifer Lawrence, who plays those really well. Plus, she's completely believable as a badass killing machine. Yeah, I also think that this role has a little more complexity than than anything in the Twilight and Harry Potter movies because she's playing a lot of, of of things at once, right? I mean, she has to do the, uh, the 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 Twilight love triangle stuff, right? She has to pull that off convincingly. She has to do a lot of action, more so than the Harry Potter kids, I would say, right? Yeah. I mean, she really yeah. has to own the screen as an action heroine and seem believably athletic, yet also sort of terrified and, and vulnerable. And uh, and then she also has to play, you know, this 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 is a, a broader movie in terms of its its political and social critique, I think, too. So she sort of has to play, you know. Know, a, a, an awakening rebel. And I think right. she carries all that stuff off with kind of marvelous complexity. I mean, I would say if, if you're on the fence about whether to get into this whole Hunger Games phenomenon and whether it's worth it, that you should read the book and then see the movie. That That's my advice in my in my review as well. Yeah, I think so too. And I would say, and I, I would agree with your review too, that you should just do it. I mean, this is going to be the best of it, honestly. I mean, it's possible that they'll make amazing movies out of books two and three, but it seems really, really difficult both because those books are bigger and and have a sort of a less great coherent plot the way this do this one does and also because the books are often just kind of bad i think but this is a, this is a real high point i think for teen fantasy franchise teen science fiction franchise i think that People are going to really like this movie in general. I really did. And if you're going, to, if you are on the fence, yeah, just do it. Just watch this and read the book, and then maybe you can maybe skip it later when it sucks. Yeah. The last thing I'm going to ask you before we wrap it up is, as a, as a father, how old would you say? I know both of your girls are too young to see this still, wouldn't you say, and to read the book? Yes. But I when would. when would you when would you consider letting your your kid read this book and see this movie? Uh, I mean, I would think that by the time she's 12 or 13, Lyra could handle this. I mean, I, you know. I don't have a 12-year-old, so I don't have a great sense of what they're able to handle, really. But, I mean, she's thoughtful enough, and I think many kids at that age are thoughtful enough to understand that it's fictional and that it's not real, but also interested enough to get a sense of why it might be important or relevant to their lives, even though they're hopefully never going to face a situation like this. Yeah, I guess by the time, hopefully, if you raise your kid right by the time they're 12 or 13, they they can decide for themselves and know for themselves how much they can take. Our executive producer, Andy Bowers, was saying that his daughter, who I think is 12 or 13, eagerly read the first two books and can't wait to see the first movie, but doesn't want to read Mockingjay, the third book, because she knows from her parents having read it and told her that, you know, it's the goriest of all and that it really is about all-out civil war and that it's full of all kinds of horrible events. And she just knows that she's not ready, so she's not going to read it yet. 
Wow, nice parenting, Andy Bowers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Way to go, Andy. All right, well, uh, please come in when Catching Fire comes out. Do you know when it's due to come out, the second movie? Uh, I don't know. I don't even think they've started filming it yet. They should have done I'm a Lord sh- of the Rings and filmed it all in one big honking two-year shoot, right? Because the kids are going to grow up. I think they'll be fine. But, yes, yeah, so they should have, but that would have been maybe even more expensive than Lord of the Rings considering the effects that third movie is going to take. But that we'll have time to talk about that in probably 2015 when Mockingjay Part 1 comes out. Oh, well, please come, come at that point and spoil it with me. Yep. All right. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Dana. Our executive producer is the excellent parent, Andy Bowers. Our engineer is Chris Wade. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Oh, I just thought of something else I wanted to talk about. Damn, I wanted to talk about the uh, the creatures at the end and how sad I was that they didn't have the eyes. You know, the special effect, I was really looking forward to that, how they were going to have like oh, the yeah. eyes of the dead children. I was kind of glad they didn't. I think that that would have essentially made it impossible for them to get a PG-13 and also would have looked terrible, would have been my guess. <laughs> they probably tried it. I bet they did a bunch of mock-ups and storyboards and said, this looks really weird and it's going to be hard to explain and we're not doing right. it. But that was such a creepy detail in the book. Yes, yes, it definitely was. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.